0: YTTP TTP studios presents to the people podcast. Welcome to the last episode of our season. If you're new here, I invite you to listen back to earlier episodes. I'm so grateful for the conversations I've had and the people that I've been able to connect with like Deja Fox, Celine Semen, and Deanne Ivory. And I think you'll find them as relevant and inspiring as I do. We are Youth to the People. We make pro-grade vegan, cruelty-free skincare for all genders, skin tones, passions, and people. I'm your host, Alyssa Shapiro, Youth to the People's editorial and special projects director. 2020 has been a stressful year, to say the least. From the shakeup of the pandemic and its real toll on all of our lives, to the exposure of and the protests against systemic racism worldwide, to the recent general election, the stress is real. I wanted to bring some perspective, hope, and advice to the show today. So we have a special guest who has lived for over a century. And actually, she was born during the last pandemic. Her advice for youth is really precious, and I'm so glad that we could have her on today we'll hear from her a little bit later. First, I wanted to talk about something that I think is affecting most of us. I don't know about you, but when I feel stressed, it shows up on my skin, which really, who needs that on top of everything else? So to talk through managing skin stress, I tapped my friend and colleague, Laura Klein. She's Youth to the People's Director of Education. And if you caught the last time that Laura was on the podcast, you know that she has a wealth of knowledge on all things skincare. Whenever I have a skin concern, I message Laura so it only felt fitting, as we wrap up what's been a really stressful year, that Laura comes in to give us a download on skin stress and how to manage it. First, she says, you have to understand how stress might look on your skin. Our skin is our biggest organ,
1: so it definitely, you know, can reflect what's going on in our environment, in our lives, in our lifestyle, and even how we're feeling. Um, you know, our cortisol levels can go kind of wild when we're stressed out, um, and will cause hormonal fluctuations. And so when you're having those things go on and maybe let's say you're stressed and you changed how you're eating, you know, eating a big bowl of ice cream with dairy can also affect your skin. So, you know, um, you might see things like dry patches, acne, acne. Um, even itchiness, sensitivity, some redness popping up that you might not normally see, or maybe even some excess oil. It really can look different based on different skin types, but typically what you could notice is like, gosh, like this never happens to me and this
0: is happening. It could be because you're stressed out. If you're looking for a skin soother, Laura recommends Youth to the people's adaptogen family, like the adaptogen deep moisture cream or the adaptogen soothe and hydrate activated mist. They both have
1: this really cool blend of using superfoods and science, as We love to do it used to the people, but you've got the science piece being a neuropeptide called a pentapeptide and its sole job is to send a signal to your skin so that it doesn't get stressed out. So it's like, if you imagine like a little flame on a candle and you're snuffing it out, that's what the pentapeptide is doing. It's like, nope, you're not going to be on fire. Nope, you're not going to hurt. I'm going to stop you dead in your tracks.
0: Oh, if only there were a pentapeptide for life itself, something to help us zen out a little bit. For me, though, it's getting into nature as much as possible and avoiding screen time. For Laura, it's taking alone time for herself. Lately, I've been
1: trying to journal a lot, and that seems to help me. I think that'll be my, my pentapeptide for the moment. <laughs> it's super important to take time for yourself. And, part you know, also taking time to do your skincare routine, honestly, it can be quite meditative, too. So, um that other piece of that superfood piece um, of being a calming and soothing ingredient for reactive skin would be the adaptogens and the adaptogen deep moisture cream and the mist Um, adaptogens are have been used for so long. Um, We definitely didn't invent them. Um, They are, have been used in Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, you name it. It is something that has been known um, typically to take internally in teas. They're a blend of um, different types of really adaptive, strong, really um, mushrooms and herbs that can Uh, positively affect your cortisol levels and your hormone levels when you take them internally but topically they also have a really calming and soothing effect and they are loaded with antioxidants like crazy amounts of antioxidants to help protect your
0: skin against environmental stressors as well and pollution. There's no magic fix for resolving stress but adaptogens are a good place to start. Something else though that I find helps is allowing space for and sharing perspective with others. It's good to step out of our own shoes and into someone else's to get a different vantage point. And for this episode, we're stepping into the shoes of someone who has over a century of lived experience. And she offers a really special perspective. Ria Wolfram is a 101 year old educator and friend of youth to the people whose prescription for a full life is rooted deeply in community. Ria was born during the last pandemic and has seen her fair share of wars, politics, and elections, and also resilience.
2: I was born when the Spanish flu took place, and I was born at home because my mother couldn't be in the hospital because of the flu. Um, I've seen the depression. I've seen the gathering of the soldiers in preparation for the war that became World War Two.
0: Rhea finds a lot of hope in building community. She says that it comes down to being connected with other people, whether that's the people in your neighborhood, your school, your place of worship, really anywhere.
2: Community is very important to me. My entire life I've done volunteer work. I feel everybody should devote at least an hour doing volunteer work because then you know what the needs of the community are and you are part of a community. And um, the community has to work together. It can't be divided. Can't be divided by race, religion, sex, or anything else. And we are in a period of transition and we have to learn and understand the needs of people who are different from us.
0: In this special episode, Rhea is interviewed by her friend and mentee, 23-year-old Megan Burke. We at Youths the People hope you love it as much as we do.
3: Rhea, what do you remember about how we met and became friends? Like, how do you remember meeting me? We've been friends for quite some time.
2: I remember meeting you. I think your mother brought you to me. You were at boarding school and you weren't very happy and you wanted to go somewhere else. And she had heard about me. I was doing educational consulting, still do. Anyway, and so we met and uh, you went to boarding school and then you went to college and I did your college counseling as well if you'll remember and I just loved you and small world department we were talking and I found out that your grandmother lives in the city in which I was born and brought up Newport News Virginia wasn't that ironic
3: yeah, the small world.
2: Yeah, and I uh, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that I was a big supporter of yours all the way through on the down days as well as the up days. I always told you that the sun was always shining, but some days the cloud covered it, but it would come out again. And you, you just... Your whole life turned around in um, boarding school. I think it was um, Proctor, yes. And then you went to California and you had a fabulous experience and you enjoyed success. And I am so proud of you. You're one of my clients who is not a client. You're a friend. One of the wonderful things about educational consulting is I had an opportunity to think young, because when I dealt with young people, I saw the world through their lens rather than through my lens. And it enabled me to have a greater understanding of the changing societal mores that were taking place. One of the things that concerns me is that my generation is not flexible enough to understand the changes that are taking place. The young people are far more independent at a much earlier age than they were when I was growing up. Um, You don't have any pattern that you follow, and you don't have the structure. And that's good and bad for you, because I think in some ways, it gives more security. In some ways, it gives more insecurity. And I think that um, with what's going on in today's world, I think the apprehension about getting jobs and having a future that replicated the kind of world you lived in when you were a kid is on your mind very much more than it has been in the past. I think you all think about the future more than you did in the past. And I'm hoping that the world will come back to be halfway normal for you because I think this is a great pressure on all of you young people. What do you think about that?
3: I agree with you. I mean obviously I haven't been alive as long as you have but just based on what you've told me before it doesn't seem like the same world that you grew up in.
2: No it's not the same world at all. Um, When I grew up I never knew a person who was divorced I didn't even know what divorce meant, believe it or not. And that's 100 years ago. And then I had a cousin who got divorced and I found out what divorce was like. But um, it was, I grew up in a very um, naive society, I guess. I can remember, oh, I guess it was maybe 40 years ago, maybe longer one little girl called me from Vanderbilt, just hysterical because her roommate was forcing her to go to a doctor and she didn't want to go, she didn't want to do it. And I can remember several back in those days who'd call and say, oh, Mrs. Wolfram, what should I do? I don't want to call my mother and ask her, but I can't get into my room. My roommate is in there with her boyfriend. What should I do? So I said, well, go to the dean and say that you signed a lease for a double room, not a triple, and let the dean take care of it, which she did. <laughs> the world has changed in many ways. I've seen it from um, the beginning of television to instant communications today. And I think television and technology is has a tremendous advantage, but I also think it has its disadvantages. I think we don't have our privacy. I think that we get overloaded with information. We don't have enough downtime. Um, But how do you feel about that?
3: I go through ways. I have times where I'm okay with how connected we are as a world and I'm glad about it. And I appreciate that I can talk to my friends from far away, such as yourself. But there are always downsides. And I think that is a downside of being so connected. It's a lot of us feel disconnected. A lot of us are a bit lonely.
2: Yes, I know that.
3: So I know you were my age and maybe a little younger when you experienced an economic recession in America, uh, which is very similar to what we're in
2: now. Well, it's very different, Megan. The depression of 1929 hit my community very hard because the income for most people there came from the building of ships. And after World War II, all the contracts were canceled and there was tremendous um, unemployment. And one of the things as a child that I did not understand and encountered and was very frightened of is I heard about people taking their lives, committing suicide, and I had never heard of that before. You know, I was just aware of families, but here were people separated from their families, and many of them, their parents didn't have jobs, so they had to try to go to another community to see if they could find it. So the family wasn't united and the family wasn't at peace as it was in a more better economic times. And then along came Franklin Roosevelt with the recovery program and people had a more optimistic attitude because the government helped provide jobs. I have been through a lot, and oh, when I think about it, I was born when the Spanish flu took place and I was born at home because my mother couldn't be in the hospital because of the flu. Um, I've seen the depression. I've seen the gathering of the soldiers in preparation for the war that became World War II. I lived in in an area of Virginia that accommodated the Air Force, the Naval Air Station, the CBs, the um, Fort Artillery. It was in 1939, when I just returned home from college, that I was aware of the fact that all of these Army-Navy bases were accumulating large numbers of soldiers and sailors who were being trained. For what we didn't know, because we really were not kept the rest of the news of what was going on in Europe the way we would be today because we didn't have instant communication the way we do today. Um, but I knew something was happening and um, I lived in a very strategic peninsula because we had the army, the navy and the air force and the artillery of camps and bases located within 30 miles of my hometown. Um, I can remember that um, we didn't know why, but we were given a curfew. We had to pull the window shades down at six o'clock in the evening and keep them down until dawn of the next day. We had air raid wardens and I was one of them. I sat on the roof of a building one night a week looking for airplane, um, artillery um, or other enemy attacks. Um, and this is all before we were at war. We just, this was during the buildup period, but the most people were very ignorant about what we were building up for because our newspapers did not carry the information that we should have known. During that time, when the war started, we were given coupons for gasoline. And unless it was a real emergency, you didn't get very much gasoline with which to run your automobile. But we saw the appearance of lots and lots and lots of soldiers and sailors um, in uniform. And that was 1939, 1940. That was even before the war started because the buildup took about two years. Um, Today, we know instantly what's going on all around the world. Back then, sometimes we didn't know it for a week or two. Um, And sometimes we were never told it at all. the cities in the inland of the country were not as affected as the port cities. And so the people, the citizens who lived in those communities did not have the apprehension that we did where I lived.
3: Were you still in Newport News at the time?
2: Um, I was in Newport News, yes. Um, That major, um, it was a staging area for the departure of soldiers uh, to Europe at the Hampton Roads Port of Embarkation. Um, the CNO Railroad ended in Newport News and this is where the soldiers disembarked and filed walking from the train to the boat which was maybe less than a five minute walk and Unfortunately, oh, I still remember with nightmares. um, I was working at the port of embarkation. And so when there was a troop movement in the middle of the night, I would be picked up by an army car taken to the C&O railroad where the soldiers were disembarking. They would call out their first name or I would call out their name and they'd have to give their uh, serial number. And I met many classmates. And of course, since I was working in secret documents, I never could tell anybody anything about any movement of um, soldiers or sailors. It was a very... um, very demanding and a very unhappy period of my life, I can tell you that. Um, Because we did not know what was going on. We just knew that our boys were going abroad. But this was after the war started in 1942. It was, I guess, one of the most demanding periods of my life. I was, um, when I graduated college, um, I was a teacher. On weekends, I would spend my evenings at the officer candidate headquarters or music halls or their social houses where they had um, the citizens of the area come and dance with the soldiers to keep their spirits up because they were there sometimes for six, eight, or ten weeks I remember going in the army bus, we'd be picked up in a big army bus and we'd go up to Fort Eustis, which was about 20 miles from my home. And we would dance with the soldiers from anywhere from four to five to six hours and socialize with them. I did that every Thursday night. I'll never forget it. I had a lot of sore feet, a lot of toes stepped on but I met young men from all over the country. I mean, I'd never known anybody from Idaho or Iowa or Kansas and they had never known anybody from Virginia. So it was like a new geography lesson for me to learn about other parts of the United States from which these young men were coming. Mm (laughs)
3: <laughs> Sounds like you had a lot of fun.
2: Well, I had a lot of fun, but I also had a lot of stress, um, because sometimes you never saw them again. Let me share a story with you. I was dating several of the soldiers, not soldiers, but the, you know, they were airmen from Langley, Flee, Langley Field, which was the air base at the time, very important to the war picture. And I saw both of these young men. One was named Eddie and the other was Jules. I'll never forget. And I really liked each of them. And one night they called and said that they were shipping out and they didn't know whether or not they'd get to see me to say goodbye, and they never did. About a year later, I was in Washington, D.C., where my husband was in a training program at Walter Reed Hospital in preparation for going to Japan because he was to become a specialist in tropical diseases. And I had a cousin very active in the variety club which funded entertainment for the soldiers and he lived in Baltimore and he called and he said I'm going over to Walter Reed to distribute Thanksgiving gifts would you go with me so I met him at the Walter Reed hospital never dreaming what I was going to be doing and it turned out that we were the first people who were being allowed in the lockup what they call the lockup division the division where the soldiers had lost their arms or their legs and here I was distributing thanksgiving packages and all of a sudden I come to a bed of a man who had both of his legs gone and who is it but my dear friend Eddie Dasher the young man that I had dated for about a year. He was a great dancer. I can't begin to tell you the shock we both had. People were not allowed to go there to visit, but from then on, I did write him letters, and I did try to keep up with him, but that was the most horrible, horrible experience, one that it took me well, it's never never really uh, departed from my mind. Every time I hear the word Eddie, his vision comes up of that scene being there with legless. And the entire area that I was distributing the packages to were people who were armless or legless. And I don't think any of them was more than 20, 23, 24, 25, 26 years of age, and that's the reality of when you don't read about it in the paper, but when it hits you, it's a memory that you never forget.
3: Wow, I can't even imagine, Ria.
2: When I got married, my husband went into practice in Bounder, New Jersey, and I went to work at the Bound Brook Quartermaster Depot. It was a staging area of materials for the North African campaign. And I had a, um, commanding general who had formerly been head of, um, sh- a big show company in New York. And he was a director of Madison Square Garden. And he did not want his civilians dressed in civilian clothes. He wanted them in uniform. And I was working in as a clerk in the administrative office of the Quartermaster Depot. And of all people, he picked me to go to New York to the designer houses and to get a uniform design for the civilians who worked at Bellmead Quartermaster Depot. And on several of those occasions, I would be handed a packet and asked to stop off at a place and deliver these packages uh, to the um, commanding officer of that office. Well, I didn't know what it was. You know, you're told to to do something, you do it. It wasn't until after the war that I became aware of the fact that I was delivering packages to the Manhattan Project, which of course you know about, and which was so secret that held all the secrets of the atomic bomb. I am very concerned about education. I think young people need to know government and economics and civics To a much greater degree than they're being taught in the schools. And now with the pandemic, I just don't know what's going to come out of the educational community. I think that there's going to be a while before it'll be strong again.
3: Well, I remember you and I have talked about this before in person about how young people today seem to be very involved in politics and how you and I both were out there trying to get the youth vote about last year, two years ago, and you commented on how involved young people are today.
2: Well, I think young people are much more aware than they have been in the past several years.
3: So throughout your lifetime, because as we've stated, you've seen a lot, you've been through a lot of eras of America. How have you seen the citizens come back from times of conflict and strife? How have you seen the resilience play out in American society?
2: That's a good question, because fortunately, we are a resilient people. Unfortunately, it takes a crisis sometimes So us. We have to hit bottom to become aware of the fact that we've got to pull ourselves up and we have new legislation and it will come. But change comes very slowly the haves are very reluctant to give up to the have nots. And the have nots really want to be able to get a decent education and a decent living. I think we are resilient. I think at the moment, I think people are looking to a new, I think society will have a new design. Hopefully they will be more open. Hopefully they will take their responsibility of learning about the issues of the day and go to the polls and exercise their right to vote. Hopefully, and I think this is a very high priority, they will become aware of the need for improving people's health as well as their educational opportunities. We still have um, a very wealthy uh, group of people at the top but we have an enormous group of desperate people at the bottom and we need to get back to having a middle class, which I think we've lost. This is a great country and we are great people and we're going to get through this. If you know anything about American history, we've had many crises, many generations before us, and we've come through it and we will come through this, but change, comes very slowly. And what young people can do is to help accelerate that change. And the older people need to be less prejudiced and need to have their minds open to accept change. Because it never go back to what was. Let's look forward to create a better society for everybody. I
3: really like this.
2: I think we need a little more sensitivity to um, manners, caring for each other, being respectful. And I think um, people have to have faith. We need role models. One of the things that I am upset about is I don't think that we have the role models that we did in the past. We have politicians, but we don't have diplomats.
3: Bria, how is community important to you, and how has that definition shifted over time?
2: Community is very important to me. My entire life I've done volunteer work. I feel everybody should devote at least an hour doing volunteer work because then you know what the needs of the community are, and you are part of a community. The community has to work together. It can't be divided. It can't be divided by race, religion sex or anything else. And we are in a period of transition and we have to learn and understand the needs of people who are different from us. What
3: drew you to education, Rhea? Was it this passion to improve the education for people who necessarily don't have access to those resources? Because you've been in education a long time.
2: I think education is very important I think it's very important that we in our schools, we become more multilingual. We've become a very diversified society with the influx of people from many countries from around the world. And many of them are multilingual and very few of our young people are multilingual. I think we need a lot of change in education I think we need a lot of more experiential education. I think travel abroad, learning about other countries, other people is very, very important. And the way they are, it's important for them to learn about us. Community, it can be a, a small group, it can be your neighborhood, it can be your church group, it can be your school group. It can just be that you're connected with other people, and that makes you part of a community. Mm -hmm. it's when you are in denial or you don't want to play be a part of anything that that's they're the people who are dangerous i think
3: it plays a part in you being able to relate to young people so well i remember meeting your friends and they were all like oh young people just love ria and i think a lot of that has to do with how open-minded you are and how progressive your values are i remember in high school, you probably don't even remember, but maybe you do. You were the first person I told that I was dating a girl. And I remember in college, you were like, oh yes, one of my new clients is transgender. And I'm so glad that people like them are able to live freely and be themselves in society now, because it wasn't like that when I was younger. And I was like, Rhea's just so cool.
2: Well, no, I spend a lot of time educating my contemporaries about accepting differences. Uh, They have have a very hard time accepting transgender, single sex, single sex marriage. This is all new to them. And uh, a lot of them are very, very prejudiced. So you have to stick your neck out and be a risk taker and try to educate people to understand it's here to stay, it's not going away. And that person has as much right to citizenship and all the privileges of citizenship, as anyone else has. And we should not make them second-class citizens, which so many people try to do. And we've got to get over prejudice. That's the first thing. We have to learn to respect the needs of other people. We don't have to be like them, but we have to respect what their needs are. Mm-hmm. But. You know, I guess I'm an idealist, but um, you have to work at it and it takes a long time. Look how long it took for women to have the right to vote.
3: Yeah, how has that been for you to watch women go from when you were a kid, not even able to work to where women are now?
2: Well, when I was a child, not a child, a young woman, and I was a teacher, if you got married you lost your job you weren't allowed to teach because they felt that you couldn't teach and be a wife and a mother at the same time now that sounds ridiculous today doesn't it <laughs> but that's the way it was that you lost your job if you became engaged or you got married mm-hmm. And that's not that long ago it's in my lifetime look how few women there are as heads of corporations or even in the leadership of our government but we've come a long way over a period of years and we will continue i hope to increase the numbers Mm -hmm. and i hope we'll increase the numbers of young people who are going to be active in politics i don't think that politics necessarily is limited by age I think they can start in high school with student government and then in college in student government and then in their community when they become wherever they're going to be working or teaching or whatever they're going to be doing. The world is changing so fast and the truth of it is you can be anything you want to be, but it takes hard work. And you don't get success in a straight line. It goes up and down, up and down, up and down.
3: Forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards. How did you, Rhea, learn to be so open? Was it seeing women getting more rights, influence how you view the rights of gay people or transgender people? or Have you always been like this?
2: I've always been a pioneer. I guess in my early days you'd call me a radical, but I was never afraid to to speak out and to be to help the underdog. And I think part of that was out of my family experience. I had an older brother who was born totally blind and I was his eyes for much of his life. And I was the recipient of the ridicule and the rejection that he experienced. So I experienced it, I guess from the time I was three or four years of age, and I was determined that I was gonna try to do something to make the world a better place. I've always been active, but I came from a family that was always active and gave to the community. My father always taught me that you're as old as you think young. And I love young people. They have the energy, the creativity, and they need to be supported. We don't have to have age divisions. We are all one people. We should all be one family. The problem is people don't listen. They don't stop to listen to the next person. They only hear themselves. But I think that's improving, I really do. Slowly but surely. You have to educate children early on because it's the reality of the world. I've never forgotten that. Every holiday, I would take my children to a nursing home to give gifts or to wish the patients a Happy New Year or Merry Christmas or whatever the case might be. And for 25 years, my husband and I worked in the laundry at Golden Age. Golden Acres, which was a home for the aged, in order to allow the staff to have the day off. Well, you have to inculcate that kind of awareness when children are very young, so it's Mm -hmm. part of them.
3: That definitely makes sense. Teach empathy young. (laughs) And I think we're getting there. Slowly but surely. Ria, what do you like the most about being 101?
2: Oh, I'm grateful for every day that I'm alive. Um, What I'm grateful for is that if you can have your health, you've got your wealth. But if you're constantly sick or if you have memory difficulties, the quality of life isn't the same. And fortunately, I haven't experienced that, but I've experienced it by observing it with a lot of my friends. I think if you can have the quality of life, that's the most wonderful part, no matter what your age is, whether you're 70 or 100 or 20.
3: That's good advice.
2: Life is to be lived. And if you can possibly participate and actually be somewhere, rather than get it all from the television or the newspaper, that's living. And living has its good moments and it has its bad moments, but you can't fall apart. You have to have that big word that you used before. You have to have resilience. You have to remember that tomorrow's another day and maybe it'll be better. And that's, I think a lot of people derive their strength from their faith. And um, I admire and respect them for I know I do.
3: That's very sweet.
2: Well, anyway, I love everybody, you know, and we've always had an open home. We were part of the American field service and we housed a young man from France for a year. We had a minister who we knew who moved and he had to leave his son here to finish school. So we gave him home hospitality We've given hospitality to residents at the medical school until they found a place to live. And so that has all enriched our lives. Um, You talk about community, that makes us part of a world community. So it takes sacrifice. We're getting there, we're getting there. I'm very optimistic. It's a wonderful Mm -hmm. country, wonderful group of people. I would like to see a social worker in every public school, in every school, as a matter of fact, a social worker and a psychologist, because there are many, many young people who can have their fears erased at a very early age if they get help early enough. It's the fear of the unknown that destroys us.
3: Right, I think you're so right.
2: (laughs) And education is so important, we can't deny that things are happening we need to be told the truth we need to have trust Mm -hmm. right
3: right and not deny the mental health of young people i think you're so right about having a social worker in every school that we often belittle young people's problems
2: yeah we do we overlook them or we we let they can't handle it alone Mm -hmm. and they need help and i'm That's what I'm working on right now.
3: (laughs) You're always working.
2: But I would like to see more young people go into social work. But, you know, it doesn't pay the money that some Mm -hmm. of the other professions do. So the dollar dictates. Mm -hmm. But I think I have great faith in young people. I've been probably more than this generation than almost any generation I've been aware of because they've been through a lot and they've had to develop resilience to get through it.
3: I really appreciate you still talking even though I know you don't feel well. I love you so much. <laughs>
2: well I love you and you're one of my bright spots. As a matter of fact what has sustained me to tell you the truth over the past few years and many hospitalizations is the friendship of my young people, my young friends.
3: Oh, Bria.
2: I put my faith in the young people, believe me, because I think it's the most generous group of young people I've ever known. I think they do care about other people and each other more. And I think they're far more open in their thinking than past generations have been. And so do support the ones who are different. My concluding statement is that life is to be lived that you have to be there to experience it. See it when it happens, be part of it, smell the fresh air, smell the flowers, take care of your health, know what your own responsibility is for self care and getting your education and making your contribution. And it's not all money, it's just personal service, okay? And everybody is beautiful. And remember, everybody has a strength. Sometimes it just takes longer to find it. And
0: that is a wrap on season O. We will catch you right here in the new year for season one. And we hope that you're staying well, safe, and connected. Be kind to one another and be kind to yourself. To the People podcast is a production of YTTP Studios. This episode was produced by Megan Burke, Menazel, and myself. It was edited by Menazel, and our theme music is by YTTP co-founder Greg Gonzalez and Hannah Fernando. Check us out online at Youth to the People or youthtothepeople.com.